0: We are up to part three of five millennia of Jewish history, and the objective is to give a broad overview of Jewish history, beginning with Adam until modern times. Part three is going to deal with a very pivotal juncture in Jewish history, maybe the most chaotic and changing and time of upheaval in our history. And we're talking about the first and second and third and fourth century of the Common Era. The event that really triggered everything to change amongst the Jewish nation, we spoke about it last week, it is the destruction of the temple, which is the symbolism of the upending of Jewish life in Israel. The Jews came to Israel with Joshua, and they were are basically uninterrupted for 1,500 years or so. A long time. And yes, they went to Babylon, and yes, the first temple was destroyed, and yes, they had interactions with all kinds of despots and dictators and madmen. And there was several times where the Jewish people were on the verge of extinction. But every time they rallied back, and they came back to the land and they flourished once again. This time, when the Romans came and the Romans spent 100 years controlling the land, and finally, during the Great Revolt of 66, there was a tinderbox that erupted And that caused wide-scale decimation of Jewish life in Israel. Now, it's important to remember, and we'll see more about this today, that the majority, perhaps, of the Jews are already living in Babylon. and have been living in Babylon for a long time. But the center of Jewish life was in Israel, in Judah. That's going to change very rapidly in this time period. There's no longer going to be even a dream of, of Jewish sovereignty. And the dream of the temple and this edifice and this office has been around essentially since Moses. Moses, he starts the tabernacle, which gets expanded to the temple. And with the brief period of 70 years between the first and second temple, there has been, since the times of Moses, there's been like a spiritual center for the Jewish nation. Now that is gone. So last week we spoke about the fact that There were certain factors that contributed towards everything to go up in flames. Primarily amongst that was the fact that the Jewish people really were internally torn apart. There were so many different groups and factions that were laying claim to the mantle of being in charge. And like in a kitchen, you can't have too many cooks. You have to have one one way to go. Here, there were 15 cooks. In fact, like we mentioned last week, the Talmud says that there were 24 different groups and factions amongst the nation. What is an interesting development, after the temple's destroyed and after Judah is in smoldering heaps of rubble, there's going to be a consolidation. And it's one of these ironies that after a major cataclysmic event that really changes almost everything, ironically, the Jewish people have a tendency to regroup And to rebuild and to come back together very quickly, stronger than they were beforehand. Perhaps a parallel to this would be in the most recent century, the Jewish people, as we all know, suffered the worst genocide in the history of mankind. Six million Jews were killed. But more than just the Jews that were killed, Jewish life that had existed in Europe for a thousand years was totally upended. And even the Jews who survived were homeless, were alone, were orphaned, were bereft of their nationality and their family and their community and their culture, and had to start from scratch. And I would argue, this maybe is a little bit controversial, I would argue that now it's been 70, 80 years since those events, I think we can make a good argument that the Jewish people are in fact stronger today than we were then. Yes, the numbers haven't regrouped. We were 18 million then. Now most estimates are we're around 50 million. But the Jewish people, before the Holocaust, they had a lot of deep-seated problems that were ripping the nation apart. And as a result of this massive shift and reshuffling of the Jewish nation, things kind of found a new equilibrium. So it's really interesting to kind of study this period after the temple's destroyed, and see what happens in all the efforts to rebuild and restart. And right away, the process to rebuild begins in earnest. And I think maybe one of the most important shifts is that there's no longer going to be a question as to who is the rightful leader of the nation. We know the Sadducees, they had their heyday. They were a very powerful force in the Second Temple era. They had control of many of the levers of power in the nation. They, for a long time, they controlled the office of the high priest. They were in cahoots with the overlords. They had a say. And then we see what happens. Judea is in flames, and the Sadducees are gone. And the reason why they're gone, not not necessarily because all of them died, but because the... Argument that we could coexist and we could blend in, we could acculturate with the Greeks or with the Romans or whoever—that became a fiction. Everyone realized that's not that's untenable. With the horrific massacres of the Jews and the Romans showing a little bit of their cruelty, it becomes clear to everyone that that is nothing more than a pipe dream to live as one with the occupying forces. The Hellenists, of course. They're gone. The Essenes, the Dead Sea sect, those group of Jews living out, uh, waiting for the apocalypse in the caves, they're gone. And even the Jewish Christians, a small splinter group of Jews who believed that JC was the Messiah, they too are going to split off and form their own religion. And what is left? What remains standing to be the light? And the force and the guiding visionary leadership of the nation, you have the rabbis, and you have the Sanhedrin, and you have the Torah leadership that assumes the mantle of absolute authority over the people. And this is, in fact, an interesting development because it really hasn't happened since the time of Moshe. We've had kings, we've had prophets, we've had high priests, we have local proxy leader, leaders of the Romans, and now... What's left? Only the Torah leaders and the office of the Sanhedrin. If you remember last week, we spoke about the fact that there was a negotiation between the leader of the Jews at the time, the the most senior elder rabbi of the time, Rabbi Yochanan of Zakkai, and he negotiated with the Roman general turned emperor Vespasian to grant a small city in the center of the land, city of Yavne, to grant it a stay against being destroyed by the rampaging Roman troops. And that 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 was accepted, that deal was accepted. And in that city, all the great rabbis coalesced, and they established their yeshiva. The ker, what's known as the kerimbe Yavne, the orchard in the city of Yavne. That's where the Sanhedrin now moves. And that's going to be a beacon, it's going to get very strong, Very fast, it's going to be a beacon that's going to re-infuse life into the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation is going to be rebranded as a nation that stands under the flag of Torah more than anything else. The dreams of nationalism, the ambitions that we can coexist with the Romans, all that get moved to the side. Over the ensuing centuries, the Jewish people will be led by... Torah leaders who will double as political leaders. So in Babylon, you're going to have what's known as the Reish Galusa. The Reish means the head, Galusa means of the diaspora. The head of the diaspora knows as the Etzel Ark. In Israel, you're going to have the office of the Nasi. The Nasi is prince of Israel who's going to come from the house of Hillel. Hillel was the prince, and as a direct descendant of King David, that office was essentially a stand-in for the office of the king. And it's interesting, you know, the house of Hillel that he's going to establish is going to outlast the house of David, the the monarchy of David, it's not going to last that long. Whereas the monarchy so to speak of Hillel is going to continue almost uninterrupted for 400 years and 15 different leaders all direct descendants of Hillel are going to have that title of prince of the Jewish people, direct descendants of Hillel are going to be people who have complete control over the affairs of the nation, are going to be conducting foreign policy for the Jewish people, are going to be negotiating with the nations. We see many, many episodes from this time of great rabbis traveling to Rome to negotiate because suddenly the political leadership of the people is going to be in the offices of the rabbis. So that's the first important shift. Uh, Moreover, that's, so to speak, on the leadership level, but on the level of the populace, the the people, Torah is once again going to emerge as the sole glory and the treasure of the people, and the defining cultural element and pastime of the nation. The Romans, they embraced sport, They embraced a military kind of warrior culture, and that was adopted by many Jews. From this point forward, the Jews are not going to be interested in drama, in gladiators, in public dancers, or various forms of immorality. It's going to be a nation immersed in Torah. Jerusalem is gone. The Romans make Jerusalem the first city that is Yudenrat, that is devoid of Jews. Jews are not allowed to enter there. The temple, destroyed sacrifices defunct Jewish autonomy is gone that's going to allow the nation as a whole to return to its true destiny and legacy Torahs, as an example there was a practice that became ubiquitous in the Jewish world called the yarche kala yarche yar, yar is a month in hebrew kala means of study there were two months a year where everyone all Jewish people came to the great houses of scholarship for a month. It wasn't just the scholars that were there all year round. It was all the lay people that would come to engage in Torah study. And the Talmud describes the masses of people that would throng from all across the Jewish world to the various institutions, and they would have these massive Torah study sessions and these incredible lectures by the greatest Torah scholars of the time. The Talmud gives an amazing uh, description of what it was like. It says that when the session was over, all these students are sitting on the ground, and then they all get up at the same time, and that raises the dust from the ground and it becomes such a plume, a cloud of smoke that it blocks out the sun. Now, of course, that's probably an exaggeration, but it, it does show again what's happening to the Jewish nation at this time. There's a dramatic shift in the focus and the attention of the nation. We read in the Shema that the Torah study should be what we do in the market, when we wake up in the morning, we go to sleep and night, when we travel, when we eat, at all times. That is going to be the focus of the Jewish people. Who are the heroes of the nation? The great Torah scholars. Who are the lowest of the low? That's the Am the simpletons, people don't who aren't scholars. In fact, there's an amazing episode uh, with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Heva is going to emerge in the end of the first and the beginning of the second century as the premier Torah scholar. But he has a very interesting backstory. His backstory is that he grew up as someone, he was a descendant of converts who were newcomers to Judaism. And he is going to, for the early part of his life, is going to be someone who is a total ignoramus. The Talmud says at the age of 40, he didn't even know how to read. He didn't have the basic rudimentary education given to every Jewish child today. And then, at the age of 40, he has a metamorphosis, he submerges himself in in Torah, and he becomes the greatest Jewish scholar of his day. And then, the Talmud records that he gathered his students once, and he told them, When I was a simpleton, when I was an ignorant boar, I used to say the following. If someone, if only someone would give me a Torah scholar so I could bite him like a donkey. That's what he said to his students. The students were a little puzzled. Bite him like a donkey? Who says such a thing? You bite like a dog, not like a donkey? So he responds, no, 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 no. When a dog bites, it bites, but it doesn't break any bones. When a donkey bites, it bites and it breaks bones. I had such enmity and such envy and such hatred deep-seated for the rabbis. I wanted not just to bite them. I wanted to bite them and break bones. But that does demonstrate it wasn't hatred per se. It was envy. The people who were at the lowest strata of the social uh, caste system, so to speak, amongst the nation, it was all measured by people's greatness in Torah. So there's many examples of the commitment of the Jewish nation uh, towards Torah at the time. The great Hillel is someone who he earned a pittance every day. He was a woodchopper and every day he would make a small amount of money and he would take his funds and split it in half. Half of it would go to his wife and to his family and the other half he would use to pay for the, the small entrance fee to get into the house of scholarship. And the story goes, it was one Friday, he doesn't have any money. And the security guard at the door, just like today, they don't pay security guards to think. So the security guard, the bouncer at the door, he says, okay, you got to give me your your quarter or your shekel or whatever, your dollar to get in the, get in the room. People told him, listen, well, I want to get in, got to pay the dollar. And Hill says, I don't have, let me in anyhow. He says, Absolutely not. Get out of here. So Hillel has such a commitment, dedication to the Torah study. He climbs onto the roof and he goes to the skylight and he puts his ear by the window. And he spends the whole night listening to the great rabbi's teaching. He doesn't want to miss. And then in the morning, the rabbis notice that it's a little bit dark. Usually they, they wait that there's the light cascading through the window, and suddenly it's all dark. So this the, one of the rabbis turns to the other rabbi. Well, why is it so dark here? So they look up and they see the silhouette of a man there. They rush up there, they extract him. It was snowing. The Talmud tells us, and they revive him. And they say, "Wow, what an amazing individual! It's worthwhile for someone like you to decorate the Shabbos over because it was Shabbos and the to clear away the snow." But again, that just shows the attitude that became prevalent during this time. Uh, The the rabbis and the scholars and Torah became the focus and the object of desire amongst the nation. Some of the rabbis would leave their families, not for days or weeks, but for years at a time to develop a comprehensive knowledge under the tutelage of the great rabbis. The tells the great Rabbi Akiva, who we mentioned, he spent 24 years studying under his great predecessors, and he left his wife. And the famous story goes that he went back after 12 years. He's, he's finished his term. And he hears his wife from the other side. You know what? If my husband was here, I'd tell him to go back for another 12 years. So he just turns around and heads right back to the house of scholarship and shows back uh, 24 years after he left with 24,000 students. Uh, there's another amazing story that does, again, demonstrate this point. One of the rabbis in the Talmud, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Bar-Edi. And there was one particular law that he didn't have clarity. And like we mentioned, the Jewish people now are living primarily in Israel, what we call today Israel and Judea, and in Babylon. And each one of these communities would have great Torah centers and great rabbis. And every once in a while, there would be people who would travel from one to the other. And the Talmud says that there was this one rabbi who had a particular difficulty in a given law. And he knew that the answer was found uh, across the world, or across the, I guess, might as well be across the world, in the other center of Jewish learning. So he traveled for three months. He went there for one day. He clarified the issue that was bothering him, and he turned around and traveled three months back. Another amazing story about the great Rabbi Preda, who is always presented as the paragon of patience. He had one student who was a little bit feeble-minded, a little bit slow. And every day, the great rabbi would have to give a lecture and the student wouldn't understand it. So after everyone left, all the other students left, there's this one student that says, Rabbi, I don't understand it. So he would do it again and again and again and again. Every day, the Talmud says, he would do 400 times conveying the same ideas to this one student until finally clicked, he got it. Anyhow, story goes that there was this one day that he's given his lecture, and someone comes from out of town to visit. And he's there, and he comes over to the rabbi, Rabbi Prey, and says to him, listen, I need to talk to you about something very important. There's a big need in the community. I need to have your attention. He says, well, uh, okay, I'll talk to you soon. I first have to do my commitments to my student. So he teaches his student 400 times. And the student says, I still don't get it. And he says to him, well, how come you don't get it? We, we did it 400 times. Every week, every day we do 400 times and you get it after 400 times. What changed today? So he says, well, there's this guy hovering over you, right? And he was distracting me. This 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 emissary that came to talk to you, he's waiting for you to finish. He He's making me nervous. I can't study. So he tells him, okay, listen, we're going to do it again. And don't worry about him. Ignore him. We're going to do it again until you get it. The Talmud describes that he did it another 400 times until finally, it clicked, but again, like we said earlier, is it possible? Did he really do four hundred times? Was it three hundred and eighty enough? That's not the point. The point is, it's trying to convey what is the attitude of the nation during this time. Now, it's important also to stress: there's going to be a major development in how the Jewish nation operates over the course of the first five centuries of the Common Era, and that is with respect with respect to oral Torah. Because it's going to be written down for the first time. At the time, there's going to be, the Jewish people are studying Torah, but it's very different than the kind of Torah study that we do today. Today, if you walk into any library, any Jewish library, any yeshiva, any house of scholarship, you'll see many, many books on the wall. And the primary books are the books of the Talmud. In those days, the Talmud was all memorized in people's brain. The only books that they had, the only finalized books, were the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. They had copies of the five books of Moses and the other books of the Tanakh. That's what they had written down. The application, the understanding, the insight into how to apply the Torah What's known today as the Oral Torah, that was oral. It was conveyed orally. And they would go to study. These young, precocious minds would go to study by the great rabbis, and they'd spend oftentimes years and decades trying to learn the entire corpus of knowledge that had to be memorized in their mind. And this does show an amazing accomplishment and a dedication. Today, the Talmud is very written down. How difficult is, is it to even study it once it's written? How much more difficult is it to try to remember, keep track in your brain without accessing a finalized version of the Talmud to keep track of all those argumentations and all those conclusions? And that system really produced a nation of, of prodigious and razor sharp geniuses. And there are many stories, again, of, of the intellectual prowess of these people who are the heroes of this time. For example, the Talmud tells of uh, one Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Every question he would ask the other great rabbi, Rabbi Shun Baruchai, who is traditionally viewed as the author of the Zohar, every question that he would ask him, the other great rabbi would give him 24 answers. One answer is not enough. The other great rabbi, Rabbi Meir, he would have 150 proofs that would be able to purify a sheretz, a non-kosher animal. But this great rabbi had such deep insight and was had such razor-sharp ability to prove things that he would say, I have 150 proofs for something that's not kosher, I'll make it kosher. And that's why the Talmud says that his students weren't able to understand the nth of his argument, the the depth of his arguments, and therefore they weren't able to abide by his rulings because they couldn't understand them. They were so deep. Another example uh, that Talmud describes, the houses of Shammai and the houses of Hillel. These are two competing institutions and they had these mega-debates. And they would have debates on important topics, on on, on topics that really encompass everything. So, for example, we're told that they had a a two-and-a-half-year debate All the Greatest Rabbis Half of them on one side, based Shammai; half on the other side, based Hillel. And what's the debate over? Question is, what's better? Is it better for humans to exist, or for humans to not exist? That's the argument. Are we better off here, or better off that not to be even be created? Obviously, that unco- that covers every possible conceivable situation that a human is in. That plays into this debate. As an aside. The Talmud concludes that these great scholars, after two and a half years of vigorous debate, concluded it's actually better for us to not be here. Now, of course, we don't choose whether we're here or not. That's God's decision. But it does show a little bit of the uphill battle that we have to face here. It's actually better for us to not be created. But once we're here, we've got to do our best. And like we said, this Torah environment was everywhere. It was in Babylon. It was in Israel. The rabbis would frequently travel back and forth. There's many very dramatic stories about great rabbis who went from one to the other. For example, it says about Rabbi Zeirah. He was in Babylon and was one of the premier scholars. And he gets to Israel and he starts praying. What's he praying? What does he want? Let me forget all my Torah because I want to study the Torah of Israel without any preconceived notions. There's no Torah like the Torah of Israel. And therefore, I want to start with a clean slate. That's one story. Another story about the great Rav Kahana, who he was living in Babylon under, their, in the time of the cult, the Persians, but it's the Babylonians. And there was an individual who decided to do something that, by Jewish law, is worthy of extrajudicial execution. The case is where someone is coming and informing the government on an, on another Jew. So according to Jewish law, one of the worst things you could do is be an informant. And the reason why is because when people would inform on the government, the government would actually kill the person who was being informed upon. And therefore, when you're, if someone were to be informing on another person, that is in effect they're trying to kill them. And therefore, such a person, you're allowed to kill the person who's trying to kill you. That's a law across Jewish uh, a Jewish jurisprudence, and therefore you're allowed to kill someone if they're going to inform. So Thomas Talmud says the great Rav Kahana, there was someone who was going to inform. So he took, he took a stick and he hit him in the head and he killed him. And then he realized, in Jewish law, you're allowed to kill this person, but not under Persian law. So he quickly packed his bags and made the long trip to Israel. And he gets to Israel, and everyone sees him, the great rabbi is here, and they give him all kinds of honor. And I don't want to spoil the story. It's on the Book of Bubba on page one seventeen. But uh, regardless, it doesn't really work out so well uh, because he gets into a huge uh, battle of the minds, if you will, between one of the other great rabbis, and it doesn't end well for either of them. But regardless, what we see here is after the temple's destroyed, after the Jewish people are in tatters, the the thanks to the Torah leadership, the rebuilding effort is very swift. And thanks to the Masifta and Yavna, they succeeded in breathing life back into the soul of a depressed nation. Every remaining Jewish community would take their best and their brightest and send them to Yavna and let them study under the tutelage of the great rabbis. And in addition, they had another problem. When there was stability, or at least a modicum of stability, it's possible to have so many disagreements and still, still be fine, still be okay. In Yavne, after the temples destroyed, they realize that the Jewish people are treading on thin ice, and therefore they made Herculean efforts to try to clarify a uniform method of practice known as halacha, a uniform method of practice for the whole Jewish nation. So, for example, they would ha- in Yavne they had a three year debate: Do we follow the laws, the institution of Shammai? or the institution in Hillel. And finally, after a very lengthy debate, it concluded, both of them are are true, both of them are Torah, but the halacha is going to follow the house of Hillel. This renaissance of Jewish life and vibrancy was so complete that the Romans, well, they thought they had rid ruined the Jews forever. Yeah, let a bunch of rabbis live in Yavneh, what could that do? How could that be a threat to us? Yavne is, is inspiring the nation they're coming out of the woodworks they're 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 joining back together they're they're unified and that sounds like a threat so the the sanhedrin actually had to go underground in various different places they would split into groups and would only meet in hiding in various different places but not together and the paramount importance of the of of the rabbis at the time is to ensure that there's peace that there's stability, they recognize that it was all the schisms that had led to this horrific destruction. Let's keep the Jewish people united. So, for example, Rabbi Yochanan Zaccai, he was the founder of Yavna. He was one who negotiated with his patient to allow this establishment to thrive. But there is a young nasi, a young prince of the Jewish people, a great great a great grandson of Hillel. His name is Rabbi Dov and thus, very shortly after founding found the Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai patches bags and leaves voluntarily. And the reason why he did that is because he didn't want to overshadow, to loom over the young Nasi. There's going to be one leader of the Jewish people. That's going to be the Nasi who is going to head the Sanhedrin. He is going to be the man. If I'm here, I'm a hundred and, he's a hundred and some odd years old at the time. He's the venerated sage. If he's there, People are going to go to him. He voluntarily abdicated his role and went to live in a different town, which does again show another focus of the time. If disunity brought the destruction, then we have to rebuild with a focus on unity. There is a rich and detailed documentation of these remarkable times, and there's one particular episode that is important to mention because it's symbolic of the efforts of the time, and that is the episode of Rabbi Eliezer. If Rabbi Yocham Etzakai was the eldest sage, and Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi, the next person on the totem pole of leadership of the people is someone by the name of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Hurkanus. He was the greatest sage of the time. And he was actually the brother-in-law of Rabbi Gamliel. And they got into a disagreement, him and his brother-in-law, about a given a very obscure case of Jewish law. And that was the case of a certain oven that broke and was put back together. And the question was with respect to the purity and impurity status of this oven. Very esoteric case will never happen in our lives. Maybe it will, but it's so, it was a serpentine shaped oven that got cracked and got put together. It's a very, it's a case that's not very common. And the rule is that when you have this agreement, you follow the the Sanhedrin rules and you follow the majority. That's in fact a verse in the Torah. Problem was, is that at the time, the Sanhedrin did not have a quorum because the Sanhedrin had gone underground and they were split into very different places. So Rabbi Leser believed that because he doesn't have a quorum and he's convinced in the merits of his arguments, he's, he doesn't need to give in to the majority. And he starts to prove with all matters of supernatural evidence that he's right. So, for example, he says, if I'm right, let that carob tree uproot itself and replant itself 100 feet away. And that's indeed what happens. And everyone's freaking out. Oh, he must be right. If I'm right, let the river start flowing the opposite direction. And indeed, it happens. If I'm right, let there, the heavens mediate between us. And everyone hears a booming prophetic voice. Don't mention Rebilliezer. He's right. And no one's impressed. Finally, he says, if I'm right, let the walls of the base marriage of the house of scholarship cave in. And they start caving in. And finally they realize he's not—he's recalcitrant, he's not willing to give in. And they decide if you're not willing to accept the ruling of the Sanhedrin, you're going to be put into excommunication. No one's allowed to talk to you, no one's allowed to engage with you in commerce. You are a pariah. And that's indeed how he lived the rest of his life. And the story continues that Rabbi Gamaliel, the Nasi, the great rabbi who had levied this harsh sentence on his own brother-in-law, he was traveling to Rome to negotiate and he's on a ship. And the ship starts rocking and tipping like crazy in the water, and he realizes that the reason why it's happening is because God's punishing him for messing with the great rabbi, his own brother-in-law, Rabbi Eliezer. And he starts announcing. He says, "Almighty, I didn't do it for my own honor or for the honor of 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 my family, my house. The only reason why I did it is because I wanted to preserve the unity amongst the Jewish people." And the waters calmed. And of course, it's a very terrifying story, but it does show. That what really was the primary focus is unity, is consolidation, is, is the Jewish people coming together and rebuilding it under the leadership of the great rabbis. With this new leadership and this new national mission, the Jewish people rebuilt themselves very fast, and 40 years later, at the year 110 of the Common Era, they were about as strong, maybe even stronger as they were before the temple was destroyed and the horrific decimation of Jewry happened. And of course, this irked the Romans, who were always on the lookout for ways to persecute the Jews. And in the year 115, the emperor Trajan, he had a war in Parthia against the Babylonians. And as we mentioned earlier, there's many Jews living in Babylon. And thus, the Babylonian Jews... They came to the aid of their countrymen against the Romans. And thus, the Romans took this as an opportunity to cause the Jews living under Roman occupation in Alexandria, halfway across the known world, to be disloyal. And they did a horrific massacre of the Jews in Alexandria and indeed in Cyprus as well. This again shows that the Jewish people were living in very volatile times. And this Volatility and this difficulty would actually accelerate in the year 117 with the rise of the Emperor Hadrian to power. Initially, Hadrian was very friendly to the Jewish people. He allowed the rebuilding of shuls and Jewish homes. He even proposed rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. But for whatever reason, he changed his attitude and he began instituting crippling decrees, forbidding the Jews from practicing many core aspects of Jewish faith, a Jewish religion. Teaching Torah was prohibited on pain of death. The Shabbos, Brismila, everything that Antiochus, the great villain who caused the Hanukkah rebellion, the Hasmonean rebellion, everything that happened three years prior, he, again, followed those paths. And in a move that rankled the Jews to no end, he decided to rebuild Temple Mount, not as a temple for God, but as a temple for the pagan god Jupiter, and he banned Jews from entering Jerusalem on pain of death. So this led to the most successful rebellion of the entire era of Pax Romana in the entire Roman Empire. That's the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Bar Kokhba was an amazing Jewish figure. He was a man of tremendous physical strength, but also a tremendous Torah scholar. So he seems to have like the whole package of a great Jewish leader. And he had a certain machismo, a certain macho-ness, a certain kind of brutal warrior attitude that he demanded, if you want to join my army, you got to show that you're tough. How do you show you're tough? Take a knife cut off your, your small pinky finger to show you got you got what it takes. And then the rabbis were like, We don't do self-mutilation amongst to do with people. You can't do that. He says, oh, you can't do that? Okay, you have to travel on a horse and uproot a tree with your bare hands. If you can do that, you can be part of my garrison. And they it begins a guerrilla war, initially fighting from caves, but ultimately brazen enough to face the Romans in open battle. And his army swells initially to 200,000. Finally, it goes to 350,000 soldiers. And they succeed in capturing jerusalem and they in fact we have today the bar kochba coins they're minted coins to celebrate the fact that jerusalem is finally back under jewish hands it's been many many years since the romans arrived and this is it and the great rabbis many of them there were so they were split some of them didn't buy into this but rabbi who was the greatest rabbi of his era of the time he says wow this this bar kochba he's the messiah And he, in fact, gave him the name Bar Kokhba, the son of the star. He's going to be the star to save the Jewish people. But eventually, it got to his head. And he told God, according to Jewish sources, he told God, listen, I don't need your help. I got this. I got the Romans. I got I got, got total control. Just don't help the enemy. And that, of course, led to his downfall. Hadrian recalled his greatest general, a man by the name of Julius Severus, who was in Britain. And he brought him to repel this revolt. And they began fighting the Jewish people uh, piecemeal. They would take one town at the edge of Judea, attack it, destroy it, move on to the next town. And eventually the forces of Bar Kokhba had to fortify themselves in the city of Betar. And they were laid siege to by the Romans. And after a prolonged siege, the secret entrances to the city were revealed to the Romans. No one knew who revealed them to the Romans. But Bar Kokhba Suspected his own uncle, one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer or Elazar Hamudai. He suspected him of being the treasonous one who revealed information to the Romans, and he killed him with his own bare hands. And at that time, he had really lost the support of all the rabbinic leadership of the nation, and he was again recalled by his real name, which was Shimon Bar Kosiva, Shimon the son of a lie. means a lie in Hebrew. Eventually, the Romans stormed the city of Betar, and the Talmud tells us, describes in very horrific detail, the slaughter and the destruction that ensued. It tells us that it was equal to the destruction of Jerusalem 65 years prior. Interestingly, this is not only limited to Jewish sources. The great Roman historian, Deocassius, he pegs the number of Jewish dead at over half a million People. The Talmud describes that there were streams of rivers of blood of the deceased that caused the Gentile farmers in the region to not need to fertilize their land for seven years. And after the fall of Betar, Hadrian really intensified his efforts to destroy not only the Jewish people, but the Jewish religion. He forbade Jewish practices, paramount amongst those is the practice of smicha he realized that the secret of the Jewish revival was the fact that they had a group of uncorrupt rabbis who were a self-perpetuating unit. And they would confer smicha to invoke someone into the group. You have a process called smicha. And he realized that I'm not going to try to destroy the rabbis. I'm going to undercut them by banning on pain of death the conveyance and conference of smicha from one rabbi to his apprentice. Not only that, if you give smicha, if you get smicha, I'm going to kill you. Moreover, in the town, in the city in which smicha is conferred, I'm going to destroy the whole city. That's a, a little bit of Roman barbarism for you. The Talmud describes there was one rabbi, his name was Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, and he took five students. And he took him between two cities, right between two cities, where no one could catch him. And he gave them smicha, but there were informants who were following them. And they told the Romans. And the great old sage tells his students, you flee for your life, I'll deal with the Romans. And the Romans came and the Talmud describes that they killed him in a horrific and brutal and macabre fashion by peppering him with spears. And there's many stories of martyrs that suffered similar fates at this time. The great Rabbi Khanina ben Tradgyon, he was wrapped in a Torah scroll and burned alive. The great Rabbi Akiva, uh, he persisted in taught Torah publicly and they flayed him alive. Just horrific and brutal destruction of Jewish leadership. Even Jerusalem was renamed Aelia Capitolina. The whole region was called Judea for energy years. He renamed it Philistinia, after the ancient and expired and extinct Philistines that lived in the times of David. Moreover, the city of Shechem, he named it Neopolis, new city. And thus today we have a city in what's known as the West Bank Judean Samaria called Nablus. And the reason why is because the Arabs, when there's a P sound, they substitute a B sound. So thus Neopolis becomes Nablus. And he even went to Temple Mount and raised. He plowed the mountain to lower it from its height. He wanted to remove any hope, any yearning from the Jewish people to ever get back to their prestige that they had prior and took Temple Mount and raised it. And after this rebellion and after the downfall of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, there were some important revelations that were uniform amongst the people. First of all, the notion of reinstituting sovereignty amongst the Jewish people over Israel via armed resistance became futile. Everyone realized it was futile. Uh, Indeed, the Jewish people are not going to have sovereignty over the land uh, from 135 till 1948. It's 1,813 years. It's a really long time. Moreover, the reality set in that there's going to be a whole lot of instability in the Jewish future. Never, never again will they assume that they will be able to live in peace and security and stability while under Roman rule. This, of course, is terrifying on its own, accords, but we have one barbaric leader killing all the rabbis and all this instability... How could you perpetuate Torah under those conditions? And therefore, there was another great existential threat to the Jewish nation. If all of Torah is in the minds of the scholars and their students, if it's not formalized written down, what's going to be if some madman in the, in, in the mold of Hadrian succeeds in destroying Torah altogether? And thus, the major effort that's going to be undertaken over the next several hundred years is going to be the canonization, codification, and formalization of the oral Torah. The first individual who is going to kickstart this effort is Rabbi Judah, the prince, again a direct descendant of Hillel from the line of the Nasi, and he is someone who is really uniquely positioned to change the direction of the Jewish nation. He is, first of all, the official leader, the undisputed leader, the greatest Torah scholar of his time, someone who is inordinately wealthy, and also Someone who has a friend in Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who is the Roman emperor of the time. And he's the one emperor who is benevolent and is, is kind to his Jewish subjects. And he, in fact, develops a friendship with Rabbi Judah the Prince. So the Roman leader, the Jewish leader, are actually friends and colleagues. And the Talmud, in fact, records many debates that the two would have, in all matters of Jewish theology and philosophy and eschatology, the Talmud even goes as far as to say that Antoninus built a tunnel connecting his palace with the official residence of the Nasi, and every day he would sneak under it and go study Torah with him. In fact, according to some Jewish sources, Antoninus actually converted and became a closet Jew. So you have all these conditions where this important relationship with the leader of the Romans, uh, immense personal wealth, being the unquestioned political and spiritual leader of the people, you have that coupled with a relative lull in Roman hostilities to the Jewish nation that allowed Rabbi Judah the Prince to oversee the greatest collaborative scholastic effort in all of human history, and that is the writing down of the Mishnah. Now, like we said, oral Torah that has been the name of the game since the times of Moshe. The written Torah, as we have fibers of Moshe, there is a skeletal outline of everything we need to know as Jews. But the details, all the laws, the application of the laws, and the practical applications, all that is still maintained and perpetuated orally. So you have many, many hundreds of years where there's the Torah is being taught concurrently written Torah, written down, and oral Torah, conveyed orally. Up to that point, for a variety of reasons, the oral Torah was not codified in a formalized way. Yes, people wrote down notes. And yes, there were many, many great rabbis. Each one had their own set of notes. But it was never the authoritative, finalized, canonized version. This is the Jewish people's oral Torah. That didn't happen until this time. Rabbi Judah the Prince succeeded in collaboration with a thousand rabbis over the course of many decades. He succeeded in writing down the complete book of Jewish law known as the Mishnah, that comprises 63 volumes, divided over six broad subjects. I want to read a quote here from Maimonides, where he explains the rationale of the great rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, for undertaking this effort. And why did our holy teacher do so? Holy teacher, by the way, is a nickname for Rabbi Judah the Prince. He's called Rabbeinu HaKadosh, because he's the holy teacher of the Jewish people because of his efforts to ensure Jewish continuity. Why did our holy teacher do so and not leave the matter as it has been? Why write the oral Torah when it has been, always been oral times of Moshe? Because he saw that the students were becoming fewer and fewer. Calamities were continually happening. Wicked governments was its, the wicked government was extending its domain and increasing its power, and the Israelites were wandering and reaching remote places. He thus wrote a work to serve as a handbook for all, so that it could be rapidly studied and would not be forgotten. Throughout his life, he and his core continued to be public instruction in the Mishnah. What he, in fact, did is he shortened the amount of time needed to become proficient in oral Torah. It used to be you would have to spend maybe 10 or 15 years just to become a regular Joe who knew oral Torah. Now, it's in a finalized book, or at least the Mishnah is in a finalized book. It's written down. You have it. You can take it with you. If you're hiding from the Romans... If you need to flee suddenly to North Africa, you take your Mishnah with you, and Torah can continue. In in hindsight, it's another decision that's going to save the Jewish people. They're no longer going to have a homeland. They're no longer going to have a temple. They're no longer going to have sovereignty over the land. But the Torah will be their inheritance, and it's going to be portable. The Mishnah comprises the laws. There's still a significant section of oral Torah that is maintained orally. But immediately after the Mishnah is written, the next juncture of codification of Oral Torah is going to begin with the writing of the Talmud. Over the next 300 years, the main effort of the Jewish nation is going to be finalizing not just the laws in the Mishnah, but everything that surrounds those laws. The sources, the examples, the exceptions, the applications, the reasons, the further analysis, everything about the application of the Mishnah is going to find its place into the Talmud. Now, at the time, there is, like we said, two concurrent, vibrant Torah centers. But there's going to be a shift here. Rabbi Jesus the Prince, he's in Israel. The vast majority of rabbis during that time are in Israel. But over the next several hundred years, it's going to shift, and the balance of power is going to pivot over to Babylon. And there's going to be an effort in both locations to write down the Talmud. But for a variety of reasons. The Talmud written in Israel in the 4th century, called the Jerusalem Talmud, is not going to be the same as the Talmud written a century later, known as the Babylonian Talmud. And the reason for that is important. Because the Jews in Israel, they, become, they, they fall under harsh times. Already in the early 1st and 2nd century, it's easier to be in Babylon than it is to be in Israel. The Romans are very hostile to the Jewish people. And there's persecutions, there's wars, there's rebellions. Things aren't great and stable. But there's going to be an uptick in the persecutions by not only the Romans, but a new ascendant nation or religion, the Christians. Like we said, the Christians, they split off the Jewish people. They're going to become their own religion. And therefore, in due course, the Roman threat to the Jewish people and the rising Christian threat to the Jewish people are going to merge. In the early 4th century, Rome is going to become Christian. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems for the Jews living under Christian rule in Israel. So, for example, the Christians in Israel were dead set on eradicating the Jews. And the emperor at the time, a fellow by the name of Gallus, he was convinced by the Christians that the Jews were conspiring against them, Which is ridiculous. The Jews didn't have the power, the numbers, the strength to rebel, but why allow facts to get in the way of good narrative? And thus, many towns and Jewish communities were slaughtered as a result. And at the time, the great rabbis in Israel were in the middle of a monumental, multi decade effort to codify what is known as the Jerusalem Talmud. But many of the teams of people working on that effort were actually slaughtered because of this persecution. And thus, they didn't get the chance to fully edit it and to finalize it and to polish it. So we have the Jerusalem Talmud, and it's amazing, but there was still more work to be done. And the leftover rabbis who survived these massacres, many of them fled. Thus, this is, again, an example of a a trend that's happening in Israel in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, that the majority of the Jews are going to look elsewhere, primarily to Babylon, as a place where they could thrive. And thus, in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, we have the writing and the completion and the sealing of the Babylonian Talmud. There's several reasons why today, when you say Talmud, generally it's shorthand for the Babylonian Talmud. The reason is, is because we follow the Babylonian Talmud over the Jerusalem Talmud. Even the Jerusalem Talmud was written earlier, and generally is a principle that the earlier scholars are greater scholars than the later scholars. Still, number one, because the Jerusalem Talmud wasn't fully edited the way it was planned upon, number one. Number two, because the Babylonian Talmud actually brings us a more comprehensive conveyance of oral Torah. And the reason is because the Babylonian Talmud, you read any page of Talmud, you'll notice there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. And there's a lot of opinions that are ultimately rejected by the conclusion of the Talmud. It doesn't just give you the bottom line. It gives you everything from the first line to the last line. It works you along the way through. So it gives you a more comprehensive picture of the back and forth of Talmudic dialogue and debate. That's number one. Number two, there's another principle that a later opinion that is able to study the earlier opinion has broader perspectives and thus should be favored. And thus, uh, over the course of the next several centuries, due to the hard work of a dedicated teams of thousands of great rabbis, they managed to finish and write and finalize the entire Babylonian Talmud that we have today in our library in English in 73 volumes. Now, there's another, another major theme of this era, and that is the rise of companion Abrahamic faiths. Like we mentioned all the way at the beginning of our dive into Jewish history, Jewish history is broken down into three epochs, into three eras. There's the era where God is unknown in the world. It's called the era of desolation. There's the era where God is known to the Jewish people. It's known as the 2,000 years of Torah. And the last era is called the 2,000 years of Messiah. And that is the time where the Jewish ideals, where the Abrahamic principles are going to be disseminated to the world at large. And that is going to bring the ideas that Abraham first pioneered bring it to the masses of humanity, and we see very interesting development. Almost exactly at the time where the two thousand, the last two thousand years, where it begins, we see a rise of two major nations and religions that are going to invest a tremendous effort to spread a rough idea of the Abrahamic principles. Like we mentioned, the Christians, they began as a splinter set of the Jewish people. However, they were split off from the Jewish nation. Uh, initially, the early Christians, they were no different than the Jews. The only belief that they had, that the mainstream Jews did not, was the belief that J.C. was the Messiah and he's coming back. And that's what separated them from the the masses of the nation. They kept Shabbos on on, on Saturday. They observed all the laws, ate only kosher. It was exclusively for Jews. They were, in fact, very unaccepting of non-Jews. They circumcised like all the Jews. Early Christians, really, it didn't really take off. Because the Jews, they saw right through it. They saw it was a fraud. And the Romans, the non-Jews, they weren't welcome. They weren't interested. But there's a major shift that changes everything. Paul comes along, he abrogates the law, and he essentially separates Judaism from Christianity. Christianity is not just another wing of the Jewish community at large, it's its own religion. Thus, there's no more circumcision, there's no Saturday, move to Sunday, there's no Torah, there's no mitzvos. It's much easier. You just do one or two mitzvos, that's all you need. And thus the Jews had to choose. You're the Christian or a Jewish, you can't be a hybrid of the two. And it's interesting, the Talmud tells us, one of the efforts done in Yavne was to weed out and to ferret out the closet Judeo-Christians. And it was a big problem, think about it. If you have a community, Jews living together, and your neighbor, he looks like you, he sends his kid to the same school, he studies Torah, observes Shabbos, you don't know if he's a closet Christian. What happens? His daughter wants to marry your son. Maybe as a closet Christian, well, how are you going to know? There's no way for you to know. And you don't want your kids to be involved in such a family. So the Talmud says, and this is of course before they abrogated the law, before it split into two religions, the Talmud says that in Yavneh, they developed a prayer to weed out the enemies of the Jews from within. And in fact, we know the Amidah prayer, it's sometimes called the Shmona Esra, which means the 18th because there's 18 prayers. If you actually go to a book today and count how many prayers, it's not 18, it's 19. And the reason why is because initially when the men of the Great Assembly, when they instituted this prayer, they did 18 prayers, 18 18 blessings. Now there's 19 because 500 years later in the city of Yavne, they devised a 19th blessing. And the blessing essentially is cursing the Judeo-Christians. And thus, if there was someone that they would suspect of being a closet Christian, they would say, okay, why don't you lead the services? You have such a lovely voice. And the guy would like, lead the services. you got to curse yourself. I don't know if I want to do that. He would say, uh, you know what? I got the flu. My throat's hurting. Come back to me next time. Eventually, you're going to have to admit either you curse the, the, those who are trying to rip the Jewish people apart or you have to choose your stripes. You can have both. And from that point forward, the Jews and the Christians would become antagonists. Uh, but it's not going to be an internal threat, it's going to be an external threat. And like we said, it's going to spread very rapidly once it's adopted by the Romans. Initially, the Romans despised the Christians and persecuted them. Constantine, the emperor Constantine, in the year 312, is going to adopt and convert to Christianity, and it's going to become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that's going to begin the era of Christian persecution of and hostility to the Jewish nation. Of course, it took the Christians several hundred years from their inception until it became a great monotheistic religion. Islam, on the other hand, which is going to begin in the seventh century, in in the sixth uh, ten or so, it's going to have a meteoric ascension never seen before. Within a very few short years, it's going to sweep over the entire Middle East and convert masses of pagan Bedouins into Muslims. And it's going to establish itself in the Middle East and in parts of Europe as well as a dominant power. And looking at the big picture of Jewish history, we see this as a fulfillment of 2000 Years of Messiah, where the Abrahamic ideals and principles are going to be disseminated on the big scale, not by the Jews directly, but by these offshoot religions that are going to do the dirty work, so to speak, of uh, spreading a rough version of Torah ideals to the majority of the world. But of course, there's something very positive about that. Today, you know, the Roman historian Dio Cassius writes that the Romans had an excess of 30,000 gods. That's very different from the Jewish idea on theology. Uh, today, pretty much the entire world, if they do believe in God, believe in a God that's very similar to what we believe. So that's a positive development. However, there's going to be a negative development because now the Jewish people are going to, from that point forward, are going to have to contend with two mighty world religions that very often are fighting with each other, and we find ourselves sandwiched between a rock and a hard place. And of course, they're going to terrorize and torment and persecute the Jewish people. And of course, from that point forward, the majority of future Jewish history is going to be dominated by the question, how are the Jews going to live? How are they going to manage under the thumb of Christian and Muslim rulers? And we will continue our study of Jewish history with part four of Five Jewish History to learn about the Jews in the medieval times, how they fared under these new threats and new challenges that uh, will erupt.